0: Welcome to The Scholar's Attic, an audio archive of our tour through world history, specifically the modern age, from the French Revolution to current events of 2021. Welcome to The Attic. This episode was recorded in two sections, the first being November 17, 2020, and the last 30 minutes or so on January eighth, twenty 2021. Because World War I is such a huge topic, it necessarily had to be spread out across several weeks, cascading even into the second semester. This is the big overview episode, all of these pieces just fit together. That's why the splicing and dicing, not a lot of attention to dates and dead people, the battles, the generals, but more about the mindset of World War I, about the attitude of the soldiers, of the attitudes toward fighting, and how strategy had to be changed on the fly, and a whole host of other things that make this such a unique moment in history. So, let's listen in. All right, so this is the PowerPoint that I had you look at and take some notes from. And hopefully everybody paid close attention to both emails because the second one, the one that actually had the, um, the, the correct link, the, the working link uh, uh, to the PowerPoint, specified which slides to take notes from. So there's really only about like five or six-ish slides to take uh, notes from. So you are exempt from say like this one. This is just like my startup slide, which I know I haven't done one of these PowerPoints in a while, but I usually do one of those startup slides where it's just something to get you in the right brain frame um, uh, as we talk through these. And it's sort of, you know, just contemporary news. Um, Anybody who loves um, vintage Hollywood, especially musicals, um, are probably loving this early, early picture of Fred Astaire. If you've never seen Fred Astaire dance, I'm telling you, the guy was magic. There's just no other way to put it. He just, in fact, my, my grandmother, my mom's mother, to the day she died, just would just complain about Gene Kelly she was like he can't dance he just he's too clumsy he's too heavy he's not light on his feet but oh Fred Astaire Fred Astaire and Maurice Chevalier were like her two heartthrobs from you know classic Hollywood Um, I'm not gonna do uh, a lot with um, uh, probably videos uh, between uh, now and Christmas, we're just gonna, you know, finish sweeping up the details and, and locking things up. But when we come back in January and we pick up where we left off with World War One, that's that's when the uh, the um, the newsreels and some of the vintage Hollywood is gonna start creeping in. J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, if, if you've even been like marginally awake in any of Miss Earle's classes or mine, but mostly her class, then you know that he got the idea for his Hobbit story while in the trenches of World War I. Um, you know, there's his, you know, uh, World War I era um, military photograph. And of course, Jack the Galveston giant, Johnson, first black heavyweight champion of the world. Um, So, these are just three of the little, just like a little snapshot of what's going on. Boxing, entertainment, and then just some, you know, random South African dude in the trenches fighting for Mother England. Because, you know, uh, Tolkien and Lewis, neither of them were actually British, right? The British claimed them, and who can blame them, right? But uh, Tolkien was actually from South Africa, and C.S. Lewis was actually Irish. So. Things to remember when those names get thrown around. Okay. All right, you behaved for me just a minute though. Why not now?
1: PTSD, I think, as well. If hmm? I'm not mistaken, uh, talking about PTSD as well. If I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. Um. It, it's. Yeah. It's. It's really. Um. More of a question of who did not have it coming back from World War One. In fact, I'm hoping my elementary girls will have their newspaper ready to hang up. Um, on Friday, we're doing a World War I newspaper. And um, one of the things that my girls are researching um, is the in the Battle of the Somme, which took place um, mostly in Belgium, uh, that there were a couple of British offensives about a year apart where they packed so much explosives, not dynamite, but like landmines, packed so much of this into one area that when it was set off, we're talking over 900,000 pounds of ammunition going off at once, it created such a crater, such an explosion that they heard the explosion in London over 130 miles away, okay? That would give not just the soldiers but anybody living in the immediate vicinity some serious PTSD and probably cost you your hearing. Um but yes, um, I think I think some of that comes through in Tolkien's writing when he writes about like the the uh, Mordor and the battle for Middle Earth and uh, just the language that he uses to describe that.
1: He really, I have a biography on him, and I I read it every now and then because it's really short, but it's a good read. Mm-hmm. He really struggled with it, like in his midlife, like right after he got back from the war. And, you know, he kind of got over it, but it was always something that, you know, every now and then the demon would rear its ugly head. And, yeah. You know, it was just, yeah, I think right after the war and then late in his life, he had a lot of problems with PTSD. Because yeah. he started to, he started to relapse in the PTSD and they think he had like dementia or something in mm-hmm. old age. The PTSD did not help that.
0: No, it was, no, it wouldn't. It was no. bad. For like a year the last year of his life, yeah, well, and if you um some of y'all know Gabe Draum and he speaks very highly of his grandfather, who's a Vietnam vet and, and um it, uh, they have stories about him, like he had dementia you know in his later years, and um but he also had seen some really horrible stuff, been through some rough stuff while in Vietnam, and it was like this sort of you know, perfect storm of just like that that breakdown at the end of his life, but then all of those bad memories and just the way he would respond sometimes and just, um, anyway, I I don't know all the details. I know he shared a little bit with me, um, but, you know, that's something that you don't ever really get over.
1: It's bad because, like, when you have Alzheimer's and then you have, like, PTSD... You know, you have the things that they don't really see, and then you have the things that they're seeing that they once saw, and then you have the combination of both, and it's, mm-hmm. it's just not good for yeah. green cancer. It's chemistry. like
0: having flashbacks, but then not knowing what to do with the flashbacks because you don't, you, you no longer have the structure mentally in order to compartmentalize or even explain what's going on in your head anymore. Okay. Um, Sort of a brief recap here we have um you know we we talked about the the whole family feud the um the 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 way uh, that whole cascade failure it it went back to family ties and then um you know i I was looking online uh you, you see here the connections with all the uh the countries showing when they made uh, alliance uh, treaties of alliance with one another um Italy actually switched sides. Russia switched sides. Um, you know, there are several different versions of this that you will find online, and they do not all look the same. Um, but, again, when you've got countries switching sides, you've got uh, divided loyalties, um, There, I've never really seen, I don't know if you have, Mr. Earl, ever really seen a... Um, something like this that just made sense of all of it. Like that there's always some aspect of the conflict that's just not going to show up in this. It, it was just too, too messy. Um, okay, so the delusion, de- disillusionment and stalemate. Now we've talked about the mania reasons for war. Uh, mania, what are my five reasons? What's the M? militarism, Militarism, alliances, nationalism, imperialism, and the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Okay, so we have those five reasons um, and this creates this fever for war. Now, um, and 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 what you see here is unparalleled in modern history. There are a couple of reasons for this. Um, and, and yes, all five of those reasons came together for like the, the perfect kind of galvanizing kind of moment where everybody's like, yeah, we're going to go fight for the motherland, for the fatherland. Um, but there are a couple of other things playing into this. Um, this was a very ideal age, idealized age even. So people had very chivalric notions of war. But those notions of war were based on the way things had happened in the Middle Ages. Uh, the the uh, code of chivalry and knights and um, you know going uh, uh, off to war, fighting for glory and honor with the scarf of your lady love tied around your arm. Like these were the images of war that most people at the time had. Most people alive during that time had not actually gone to war for any reason unless it was for something very uh localized um or isolated like the opium wars like the opium wars were bad enough in and of themselves the american civil war uh, still the, like the bloodiest conflict that we've ever had on our own soil but as far as like you know the crusades or you know the the battle of agincourt you know, these, these um, uh, wars of conquest that happened during the Middle Ages, like these sorts of wars had not happened in a very long time. Really since the days of Napoleon was the last time that there was like this full-scale war that dragged more than just two countries or two sides into it. And so everyone had this this sort of picture in their head of either riding off on a white charger or fighting alongside Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson and it was a very sort of pie in the sky sort of picture of what this was supposed to look like and um, because of the industrial revolution because of the technology advancements there's this sense that any war happening from this point on would be very quick because the technology would enable one side or the other to just shut everything down and that um, in going off to war in 1914, that this would be a war to end all wars. So we are enlightened, we are evolved now. We have advanced technology, advanced weaponry. This will take us a few weeks, three months tops. That's what they were saying on all sides. No matter what side you fell on on the war, this was something that was supposed to be short, quick, to the point, and at the end, we'll all just dust ourselves off, shake hands, and go home. Um, the The other thing playing into these notions of, you know, you know, these sort of delusions of grandeur in regards to war is that it was standard. Um, it was a standard part of education, at least in the West, that everyone had Thoroughly studied the Odyssey, the Iliad, and the Aeneid, and so a lot of uh, your schoolboys who were old enough, like barely old enough, or maybe they uh, to go to war, or maybe they were at university by that point. The bulk of what they understood about war was based on not only medieval English, you know, historical record, but ancient Greece. So they're thinking of Odysseus and Achilles and Aeneas and all of those guys and they're like, oh, to be, you know, to have people in future years sing of, of our great glories and to be toasted by future generations, like all of this was playing into their heads. And so men showed up in mass numbers to enlist for the military. Now, most of the nations at this time had very large standing armies. Uh, uh, Germany, um, I believe, had somewhere in the neighborhood of 700,000 um, in their standing army and almost that many in their reserves because most countries of the time had, um, had a law and, and some countries still do, that when a young man comes of age, if they are physically able, if like you have passed your physical, then you are required to spend a certain amount of time in the military and then even when you muster out, you are considered to be on the list of the reserves in case your nation does go to war, they can call you up. Most countries back then had that already in place. So like the Germans had over 700,000 men in, ready to march out and almost that many um, in the reserves. Uh, France actually had about a hundred thousand more in each category. They had very large standing armies. America by contrast did not have anything like that. Um, Based on our experiences with the Civil War and with the American Revolution and the War of 1812, military service was considered a volunteer um, position. Like this is something that people volunteered for, but you did not force people to fight in the war. Of course, by the end of the war, all of that had changed. Um, Just about everybody had some sort of a draft in place, including the United States. Um, So... All of this comes together and, and these guys, they show up in droves to uh, fight for their nation. Uh, and if they weren't in the military or in the reserves, they were showing up. We also have um, a, a high incidence here. This is another thing that my elementary girls and I are working on of a lot of guys showing up to um, enlist who were not old enough. Um, uh, As a general rule, countries set an age limit of either 18 or 19 to be old enough to enlist in the army. And so you had a lot of guys showing up and enlisting and they were 17, 16, 15, 14 years old. We do have reports um, like in America, um, some boys as young as 12 showing up and enlisting and they were allowed, they lied about their age and of course you have to give an occupation so they would give an occupation, they would make something up and you wonder, well, how did that happen? How did these you know, uh, guys your age or maybe even younger sign up, join up for the military and the army took them? Like how, how would that go down? Y'all tell me, speculate. Um, I think Cameron is the only 18 year old, I think, well, you're you're, you're almost 18, but you wouldn't have been allowed to go to war um, back then. You, they, you would have been allowed to go to the front lines as a nurse, um, but not to fight. Um, I think Cameron's our only one who's 18 and he's not here today. The rest of you, if you showed up, you would be illegal. How, How would you, besides just obviously like lying about your age, how do you get by the, the, the screening process, yes? Because the
1: recruits wanted more people. Pardon? Because the recruits wanted more, uh, I mean the recruiters wanted more. Okay,
0: so some of the recruiters were just unscrupulous in this um, uh, area, and they were just like, yeah, we need men, especially once it got uh, toward the end of the war. They're like, we need fresh blood. We need more men. Yes, absolutely, you know, just, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Just sign them up. But some of the recruiters had more scruples when it came to this. What else might have convinced somebody, somebody who was a little more, you know, a recruiter who's a little more honest about this, what might have convinced them of your age and ability to fight in the war?
1: The only thing I can think of is like bribery, but I mean, you're 12, you don't have a lot of money. That want. is
0: true. That is true. Okay. So let's let's dig a little bit into um, older lighthouse history. Anybody here remember the Trailer Brothers, Ian and Tate Trailer? Okay. Um, I, it, it, I, so Luke remembers them. How how tall were they? Six four, six five, and that was by the time they got to, like, what, sixth grade? Like, these guys were huge. Now, they weren't huge this way, they weren't broad, but Ian and Tate trailer by the time they were in, I, I kid you not, sixth grade, you know, they'd be sitting in class for foundations, and both of them, Tate especially, like, they'd be sitting in those chairs and, like, their knees would be up under their chins, and they're, they're like, riding like this because they just didn't fit at any of the tables, any of the desks. And this is when they're 12, 13 years old. If they had showed up and, and they had their own shotgun from like working, living on the farm, then yeah, you know, that either one of them could have said, yeah, I'm 18 and, and I, I helped my dad on the farm. Sign him up, sign him up. Because some of these guys, you know, and some families, they just grow you bigger. Like that you just, like some of them, like you just, you know, it looks like they just sort of fed them fertilizer and then boom, like they, they just, you know, it's the Hulk. And then others, like in my family, we have two extremes. You either grow as big as the Jolly Green Giant or your Hobbit size, like we have no in-between. You know, you're either a Polly Pocket or you're an ant. I mean, there's, there's no, no happy middle there. And so that is another way that a lot of these guys got through is because they actually did look that age. Or even if they looked a little baby face, it's like, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's ripped and over six feet tall and he's been using a gun since he was five. Like, we don't even have to train this guy how to shoot. So especially if guys had, um, if if they looked the part and they had a background either in hard labor or in farming, you know, another way was if they had already been living on the streets. Okay, it's like, well, you know, nobody's going to miss them. So we may as well sign them up. They'll get three meals a day and new clothes. And who knows, maybe they'll actually be able to help us carry the day in a pinch
1: and even today the military is made up of guys just like that you know you're either you hear stories all the time of prison coming out of prison don't have anything else to do don't want to go back to jail don't want to go back to stuff that got me in jail i'm going to go in the military uh i grew up on a farm don't want to farm don't have the money to go to college i'm going to go in the military they'll pay for my college yep i'm working hard i just lost my job you know my job's gone away. I'm Going to go into yeah. the military.
0: You know? So lots of reasons for going into the military even now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: the, those are the guys that make up our military, you know.
0: Yeah. And, and you want those fighting, scrappy kind of guys right, on the they, front line because they're the ones that get things done.
1: You know, farmers, they got to think on their feet, especially back then. They didn't have technology to do stuff. They're like, all right, well, how yeah. can I fix this problem without spending any money and without using someone else's resources? Yeah. So you put that in a situation of all right. Well, how do I get in that trench without getting myself, my buddies, or anyone else killed in this area? Yeah.
0: My dad down. was telling a story the other day, and I, I need to double check on some facts before I try to retell the whole story. I see you, Leo. Um, but um, but he he has a couple of really great World War One era stories that revolve around like the Kansas farm boy. Um, that you know maybe they were legal age or or like in this case I don't think he was but they got to a certain part on a certain place on the front lines and the army ran up against a certain problem and he's like hey I, 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 I know how to get rid of this I know how to do this you know back on my farm in Kansas and then he you know he finally got the right person to listen to him and sure enough his idea worked and but it was because you know, you grow up in that kind of environment, you're used to thinking outside the box. You have to. Yes, Leo. It's
1: interesting because they, the recruiters today actually still, they can't legally take someone who was a comic or something, but they kind of, there's a yeah, saying. Quick, wink,
0: wink, nod, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a saying uh, they have, where there's a will, there's a waiver.
0: <laughs> where there's a will, there's a waiver. Yep, yep. Well, and see, nowadays there are more ways to check up on people. You now, I mean, you're basically fingerprinted at birth. I mean, that that's you know, basically your fingerprints are on record from the time you come on home. You come home from the hospital, um, and then if you're like me, and you are in a an an occupation where they do regular background checks, even before they hire you. Like I, I have had over the last few years, I've had to uh, go in and be fingerprinted. Actually, a couple times. The first time was the the ink method, but then that's when you have people at a um, an office somewhere, you know, studying the the whorls and peaks of of your fingerprints and checking it manually. Um, a few years ago, I was required to go and do that again digitally so that it was in the database. So if I go out and commit any kind of crime now and my fingerprints are found at the scene, they can find, you know, me out like that. There's like, oh, it's it's Miss Goff. Like she's she's public enemy number one. Put out a you know, an all call for this one, all points bulletin. We need to find her. She's dangerous.
1: Who needs privacy anymore?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was I was checking temperatures one morning early on the school year, and, and the mom that was doing the um parent monitoring, she's like, yeah, my QRC code is right here, scan it. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much where we are. But see, nowadays we have all of these digital methods of verifying that that, that sort of thing. Back then you didn't, you just showed up, and if you're tall as a church steeple and look the part and you can shoot straight, they signed you up. Um, so, so many different battle plans involved um, in, in this war and, and things that went well, things that did not. The Schleifen plan um, is probably one of the most uh, hotly debated and, and talked about one, at least in the history books. Um, it was an old battle plan idea that got resurrected uh, by the Germans. And the idea was to defeat France quickly using 90% of their military force. And in fact, they tried to do this again, or version of it late in the war, when they realized that the Americans were getting into the war, there was this mad scramble. It's like, okay, we need all the troops that we can muster, and we need to move them through France now. We need to put the, the nail in the coffin for France before the Americans get over here. We've got about three weeks, before the other side gets glutted with all of this fresh blood and enthusiasm, we need a strike now because once the Yanks get over here, then it's, it's going to scramble all the rules, which is exactly what happened. Um, so, the plan hinged on a strong encircling of Paris, but due to fears about a Russian invasion, military leaders pulled troops farther east, plowing instead through Belgium and Luxembourg. So, um, and then of course you've seen uh, the map uh, and most of the trench warfare, the ugliest scenes of battle happened during, uh, through, through this section here. Um, there is a 500 mile line of trenches that worked its way through Belgium uh, down through the uh, northeastern part of France. And during my time in France, I actually... uh, I'm just going to pass over this one. You have it in your notes. and and, Because you know that the the trench warfare was that once you dug in, you were there for months, if not years. And the gains came in um, quarter miles and half miles. And I think the largest gain made by trench warfare was about four miles. Uh, You know, that's basically... Like, that's from here to what? What's four miles from here? Uh, like the, the new Chick fil A? No, it's no, not four miles. Okay. New not, Harold, it's, not it's not. It's not. So, basically, like, from here to like, the other side of the square, like the library. Let's say the library. It's like from here to the library. Like, that's the largest land gain. That we had so you know we have this line going through there and there's your trenches Um, but uh, yeah that's what I was saying is when I got to visit France several years ago like these are photos that I got to take I got to visit part of this line this and it's you know in France it's called the London Anyway, I I can't I can't Frenchify very well, but it basically it, that's the name. It's just called the line, and it extended through this part of France that I actually uh, got to stay in, and so I got to visit some of these trenches. And you can't really tell so well from the the picture, but it's up on the side of a mountain, and wherever you see these sort of rocky outcroppings, in the, there's some old barbed wire. Like the trenches um, are down. There, uh, The trail there is uh, sort of up on a ridge between what were the the front lines, the front trenches of the French and the German side. So the person in the red jacket could walk about 10 feet to their right and drop into the German line, whereas the person in the blue jacket could walk about another four or five feet and drop into the French trenches on their side of the line. So that's how close they were to each other. Like you could, you know, if nobody was shooting at each other, you could stand up and have a conversation with the guys in the front line on the other side. Um, And these trenches at least were not very deep. So I am five feet, four and a half inches tall. That extra half inch matters. So I'm five, four and a half. And when I stood up in the trenches, the top of the trench came to here on me, which for some of you, that would be more around like your waist. So you get some of these bigger fellows down in the trenches, like you're, you're having to monkey walk uh, for most of it, uh, unless you are in one of these trenches, which you can tell these guys, like this is home sweet home. Like they have been dug in for a while. So there was like the, the hurried... Um, a trench making in the beginning, and then you start digging further down. You start finding uh, sticks to make more insulation. Um, you start uh, carving out little nooks and crannies with, uh, so that you could sleep, um, and, and little um, outcroppings where you could, you know, sort of halfway rest while you're waiting to start shooting again. Um, and, but for the ones, for the The earliest trenches, and if especially they were up in more mountainous places, like you're, you're hitting up against rocks, you're just not able to dig very deep. Um, And so a lot of these guys, you know, once they dug in, like they were there. Um, And sometimes until the war was over or almost. Um, Abrupt change in strategy. Okay, so this is another reason why the Schleifen plan didn't work. There are a lot of reasons why the Schleifen plan went bust. But again, just like so many men showed up to enlist um, with these old fashioned notions of war rattling around in their head, um, the generals and the military commanders had these very outdated notions of how to handle war. World War I is the last war where people charged into battle on horseback. It was the last one where men showed up expecting to wield swords and javelins. Um, you know, so there's still this sort of old world idea of lining up your regiments. And you know, rank and file and and just marching them through the fields, and of course, that quickly bogged down, and that did not happen. And so they were basically having to make up new strategies on the fly because all of the old playbooks didn't work, except for our Sun Tzu's Art of War which still applies even now but there had been no chance to look at that original blueprint and say okay how does this work with tanks how does this work with airplanes like we've never been able to add that third dimension to warfare it's always been two-dimensional is you know front back left right um but now we've gone third three dimensions with submarines being able to attack from beneath and airplanes being able to attack from above And it just completely scrambled the rules of the game. Um, Okay, and then uh, with with that being the the, uh, trenches that I got to visit, this is the map of those trenches. One of the interesting things I found out about at least this section of the line um, that I got to visit is that, and and this is also where those sort of old gentlemen rules of combat come into play. Um, It was decided where these trenches were going to be set up. And so the French and German leaders met in advance by about eight months to plan where these trenches were going to go and to set a date for the beginning of the battle. And then they pulled in their men, they pulled in their supplies, and then for six months they their men on both sides dug trenches and they did fortifications and they stockpiled supplies and all this while nobody shoots at each other. Nobody gets murdered. Nothing. They spend six months preparing these trenches and then on the appointed day, at the appointed time then they started shooting at each other. Gentlemen's Rules of Combat doesn't work that way anymore and in the beginning they also observed the old manner of doing things and that you did not fight at night Um, and so when the Scottish decided to start sending uh, their regiments there was one regiment in particular, it's one of my favorite stories from World War I um, that when they showed up to the rest of the British uh, regulars they looked Ridiculous because they're Scotsmen, so they show up wearing what kilts. kilts. They're wearing kilts. They're wearing those little, you know, knee-high socks with the little lace-up shoes and the the, the man purse, whatever that is, that hangs in front with the tassels. And and their caps. They all had long hair and beards, but they all had long hair, and they they just come with like their bedroll and their guns. And so the the British look at them coming. And, and, you know, filing onto the transports and things. And so they start making fun of the ladies. Well, by the end of the war, that same regiment, the one that in particular that I'm thinking of, I would have to double check on the number, um, they were known as the ladies from hell. Because what they did is they would go to, you know, wherever they were put, they were put in the trenches. And when everybody else was shooting like crazy at the other side during the day, they would sleep. Like they're just like, yeah, call us when it's over. And they were they would just go to sleep. They would just, you know, put their fingers in their ears, put their bedroll over their head, whatever. And of course, the the British soldiers started getting really mad. It's like, "Oh, well the feckless drunks from Scotland, you know, they, you know, they don't do what they're told. You know, they, you know, they just sleep through the entire conflict. What good are you anyway? Well, what good they ended up being is that the scots would do their best work at night so whenever when all of the fighting had died down and uh all of the shooting had stopped they would wait a few hours till the middle of the night when everyone on both sides were asleep and then they would decide on a number they would get together and they would decide on a number they're like okay tonight the number is 3 And they would each pick a trench because, you know, you you figure out where the other trenches on the other side are. You just can't get to them, right? So they would go out of their trench into the enemy trenches. And they would each pick a different trench. And they would go through and they would just kill every third man. One, two, stab. One, two, stab. One, two, stab. One, two, stab. And they would do that. And they'd keep this up for about an hour, hour and a half, and then they would just scamper back over to their home turf, get back in their trenches, and go back to sleep. And so a lot, at at first especially, nobody knew what had happened until the next morning. Everybody gets up to resume the daily shooting, and you hear screams and uh, of anguish coming from the other side, because it's like the angel of death has passed over. Just every third man is just dead. And so there's this, you know, big hullabaloo. Uh, It it absolutely messes things up for the new day of conflict. And the Scots would just buy their time, and they wouldn't go out the next night or even the next week. They would wait a while for all of the, you know, the, the tension to die down, for people to stop maybe being quite so vigilant at night. And then after about two, two and a half weeks, they're like, yeah, I think the number tonight should be seven. And then they would do it again. One, two, three, four, five, six, you know, stab. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, stab. And, and finally, in, in, in this particular case, the German commander wrote a nasty letter to the British commander accusing him of violating the rules of gentlemanly warfare and that he was, they were to desist immediately in doing this because this is not gentlemanly-like behavior. So, like this, this is the this is the kind of you know crashing conflict between the old world mindset and the new realities of modern warfare. And yes, I think you are very patient, Rhett. Always, Go ahead.
1: You can always count on the Scots to do something completely insane like that. <laughs>
0: completely insane.
1: So, I mean, these are you have to think of their heritage because, like, these are the guys who. 200, 300 years earlier were already doing stuff that was insane. You know, paint mm-hmm. themselves blue and waiting for combat with two axes and nothing else. Uh, yes. And <laughs> yeah the preppy French walking up and screaming in terror because they're like, What is this demon that just came <laughs> right.
0: it's almost like what me. you see from um the old Viking sagas of the berserkers, right? right. Just, like, just, just straight ahead and course, the enemy just flees in terror, not because you're really that dangerous, but because you have just <laughs>
1: The shock just gone psycho on them. And then they come to World War One and they just do this kind of thing, and they're like, Yeah, hey, it's, the it's you Yeah. Know, Their thing is even if they're not screaming and painting themselves blue, they're coming up with a new way to, you know, strike just, terror in some weird out of the box way that no one thought Absolutely.
0: And these guys are, you wanna talk about you know, high pain threshold. The the whole reason that I know about this particular story is again former lighthouse family, the Clarks. Some of you know Andrew and Lydia Clark. Andrew graduated from here about what four years ago. Um, it was I, their maybe not their grandfather, maybe it's Carol Clark's grandfather who was in World War One and he was part of that regiment. He was one of the ladies from hell, and during one of the battles, he got a gunshot wound to the head. It went, let's see, it, it didn't go through his brain but it was one of those things where it went through his jaw on one end and it went out like the hinge of his jaw on the other side and he was left for dead. He finally woke up, realized the condition he was in, threaded a handkerchief through his head and crawled three miles to the nearest place where he could get medical attention and they're like, we thought you were dead. It's like I'm, you know, <laughs> like help. I need help here. Um, but, but like that. There's just tons of stories like this, especially from like the Scots, the they Indians, the, the people from the the soldiers from India. Like that, they, they also. I mean, you're talking about what was it? Is it the Battle of Thermopylae where it's like the 300 against like the yes. the jillions of Xerxes? Yeah, like we have several of those sorts of stories too coming out of India. Because I mean, this war raged all over.
1: It was like the, yeah, that general from Germany. You know, if I was going to take, if I was going to take hell, I would take the Australians with me. It's like you're not expecting this little country to have like these crazy soldiers, and then when you right. think about it, you're like. Well, let's think. Ninety percent of their landmass is desert. Yeah, they'd be yeah. pretty crazy. And the
0: ten most poisonous spiders, and um, most of the um, uh, the most poisonous snakes on earth, including the most poisonous snake on earth. Like, it, they're all in Australia. The most poisonous jellyfish. The most poisonous anything. Anything yeah. that can kill you, like so quickly that you go. I say, what is that? Like that kind of lethalness, like th- it's all in Australia.
1: And you think? Oh yeah, they would be crazy. You know, no.
0: Yeah, you would have to be. That's how you survive. Kind of a strange exclamation, but that's why I knew that Lost had like some part of Australia in it. Because I was like, there is no way this is. Not Australia. <laughs> There's no way that this is. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it is one of those things that I filter stories too. it's like, what? Where does this come from? Yes. Uh, real quick, um, this is why. <laughs> I can't count on the kilts in my classes because they're just amazing. They also, are. standard issue in the Scottish dress, the traditional with the mm-hmm. kilt and all, those socks are high in the knife. Oh, so yeah. That is standard issue. Yeah. If you don't have the little dagger in your sock, you're not properly dressed. No. No. Like, you can have no clothes on and be painted blue, but if you don't have your, your knife, right. you, you know, if you have your knives, and you're that's properly dressed yeah like it cracks me up. one of the movies that that um, we like at our house I don't know if y'all have seen it is Sahara um, and there's you have the, the the two military guys they go behind enemy lines to save the the damsel in distress and, and win the day and, and all of this and at one point they get captured and they're supposed to like get rid of all their guns and there's this one guy and he's just like this he's like a little squirrel he's like about as tall as me with his hair sticking out everywhere. He looks crazy. He is crazy. Um, but it was like every three steps, like he's dropping another knife and another clip. And it's like, you know, <laughs> until, they, you know. And they turn around and like, he's like, what? Yeah, you know, what? And, you know, everybody's just laughing at him because he's still, like, releasing this arsenal and leaving, like, this whole trail. Like, that's the kind of thing that the Scots would do. And the knives, again, you know, if you go over to enemy... Trenches, you know, one two three stab, one two three stab. You know, if you use a gun, you're going to alert people to your presence. But if you use a knife, then they're not going to know about it till the next morning. And and from what I understand, it was one strike, move on. So there there was n- none of this, you know, s- sawing, how you know.
1: Trained too, cause like a knife is a <laughs> way more personal thing than like a, just shooting someone. I mean, you can shoot someone and get away. Yes. Through but you're down in the, no, don't want to mess yeah, up you're,
0: yeah, you're down purposes. in the trenches and you're you're knifing someone that is very personal. It's
1: like Marines on steroids or really. that's crazy. Oh, yeah.
0: So, um, so we will talk more, um, maybe on Friday, about the technology aspect, but um, yeah, the... Um, the, the physical cost, we've already looked at some of this uh, through uh, Selah's presentation. I don't know why I'm adding an art to the end of your name. Selah's presentation <laughs> uh, on, on medicine. Um, but yeah, the, the whole leap up of technology and the way it was applied during the, um, the war itself, uh, major rule breaker. It, it completely rewrote the playbook. Um, and then, of course, I love the fact that in World War One and World War 2 you, you'll see all of these tragic photos, and then you'll get photos like this, where it's just like, here, take a picture, send us you know. It's almost <laughs> like in
1: just, warfare, it's like a weird sense of humor. It's like either really dark... But there's always those moments of just absurd humor that pop up so yeah, yeah can just laugh at it. You would
0: have yeah. to. And see, I think this, this also connects back to why God designed men and women the way he did just even psychologically. Because as a general rule and I know there are exceptions to both sides of this, so okay, but as a general rule, guys make fun of bodily functions, women discuss bodily functions, like poop and pee and and bleeding and that sort of thing. And if you think about it, if women are supposed to be the nurturers and the caretakers, then we are looking at people who potentially cannot explain to you what's wrong to them, with them, either because they're teeny tiny or maybe it's it's grandma and she has dementia. And so you're having to look at their eating habits and what gets pooped in the potty or what's in the diaper and that sort of thing. And, and you're having to go, okay, do I just back off on giving them apple juice do I call the doctor or do I get them in the car and take them to the ER now? Like, you have to, like, make this sort of triage because as the caretaker, the nurturer, like, you have to just... That's what you have to deal with. That's your reality. Now, if you're a guy and you're in the trenches of World War One, and your latrine and your bed and your battlefield are all in the same six square feet, then at some point you just have to go, ha, that's funny, I'll do better next time. And just keep shooting because, like, there's no point being squeamish about like the latrine bucket because where are you gonna go you try to get out of the trench they're gonna blow your head off and so I think why because a lot of times you'll get into these little little tiffs, especially like among siblings like oh you're so immature oh lighten up like what's your deal you know especially between brothers and sisters and that's just your God-given DNA of like the psychology of you know guys were intended to be the protectors of the family. Women were intended to be the nurturers. And there are times where we have to step into the other role, but as a general rule, that's what you do. And, yeah, like, you have to have a pretty bleak sense of humor when it comes to stuff like this, because otherwise, forget the PTSD, won't live long enough to have it because you'll go crazy while you're in it. Yeah, it's like all the guys doing war biographies and
1: stuff, they're all talking about, you know, we all... Yeah. stuff and stayed sane and it was yeah. always the, the most popular guys in like her groups were the guys who could no matter what they could always go ah that's funny don't you think it's funny and they yeah. point it out and you go oh yeah that is funny when you think about it like that because even with like stuff that normal people would think is like sick it's yeah because like death brain, jokes
0: when you're in the middle of the trenches right like why joke about death your brain
1: has to we have to comprehend mm-hmm. it and humor is the best way for us to just Real quick 30 seconds okay that's funny Brian is fine with that now I'll move on yeah. to the next horrible thing we have to see
0: connected with that and then miss Earl I, I will need to I'll need to spend the last five minutes talking about the the other handout that needs to go out um, but connected to that I, I once heard a speaker uh, talk one day he said that men and women each have the one superpower that the other cannot take away from them ever ever. Men have the ability to literally think of nothing, nothing. You can go to the nothing box in your head and think of nothing, and that is not a sign of mental instability. That is something that a guy can do. Women, we have the opposite superpower. Our brains never turn off, and we are seeing connections between things that trying to explain that to somebody else, are like, what? Are you crazy? No, actually, wool blankets, alligators, Paris, France. It all makes sense. And he's like, no, yes it does. Because we we are constantly making those connections because as nurturers, we are supposed to be juggling the household, taking care of the kids. Oh, my husband needs his pants pressed for work tomorrow. And by the way, don't forget your lunch, honey. And oh, it's time to order groceries online. Nope, Uh, 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 T-R-I-P-A-N. And check to see what the ending is. And, you know, you're, you're doing all of this as a mom and mother. And it, it's just, it's what you do. Like, your brain never shuts off. But a guy, you can do that. And it's part of that safety mechanism that God worked into you so that you can survive crap like this. So, nice little preview of gender studies next semester. <laughs> okay. Okay, yes, there we go. Um, so, we've been talking about World War I, and I just sort of had to leave off in the middle of the war. And, uh, World War I is messy. There's a lot going on, uh, not just with the interconnection of countries, um, but also this is the first war where we get organized spy networks, Um, And it is a global war, a global war on a scale that had not been, you know, that that the world had not seen previously. It's also an interesting war in that it's sort of a collision of old and new technology. And we talked about how this is the last um, war where people rode into battle on horseback and, and with swords. Um, but we also get mustard gas. We get planes dropping bombs from above. We have submarines shooting out boats from below. Um, and, uh, you know, again, in, in the world of game changers, World War I was a big one. Now, briefly, before I go to um, our PowerPoint for today, let's talk about the Zimmerman telegram. So the Zimmerman telegram was in your history homework uh, for today. And then you also had the little Zimmerman telegram decoding sheet that you did. Some of you might have actually done it before when you had story of the world with your moms um, or, or with me for uh, Classical core. Um, but talk to me about the Zimmerman telegram. What's the big deal with this telegram? Like what? What happened here? I know we're all half asleep. And now maybe slightly depressed because Ms. Goff started off with politics, but you know, go ahead, and They promised
1: land to Mexico if they joined with Germany in World War I to okay. try to get America involved. Is right. They promised, and they promised, like, Texas and, like, all, all those states that kind of border Mexico. Right.
0: Which were actually American. Yes, with uh, the, which are were and still are American states. Now, um, here's the interesting thing. So the, the telegram was encoded and it was presumably from Germany to Mexico, you know, presumably there goes the conspiracy, but there's actually an interesting kind of conspiracy twist to the Zimmerman telegram. Um, but they, the once decoded, it promised to give Mexico certain Southwestern states that once upon a time had been part of Mexico. So if you go back last year to when we did American history um, and we actually didn't get to talk about the movement West that much because COVID and quarantine and distance learning just sort of scrambled all of that. Um, But if you were to go back say even in the history book that you have and look at this, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, Texas, all of that, and there are most of it, once upon a time was an extension of Mexico. And so this is why the Rio Grande has become a big dividing line for several battlefronts when you talk about American history. Um, It was the uh, dividing line in the old wars out west is the dividing line now with illegal immigration. Um, But basically when America appropriated the lands north of the Rio Grande and those became American states, you know, Mexico lost an enormous amount of territory. And so this telegram would have been particularly, particularly, ha, new word, particularly incendiary for the time. It would be now if someone said, hey, if you will join forces with us, we will take a fourth of American lands and give it back to you. Okay, so this was a big red flag. Now, the big question around the Zimmerman telegram, um, which has been there from the beginning, is what?
1: Did it actually come from Germany?
0: Did it actually come from Germany? Okay, so the question is, was this a legit offer from Germany to Mexico or was this staged to force America into the war? And so that debate, and again that is not Ms. Goff being conspiracy queen here, that debate has been there from the beginning. There's always been this question about the validity of the telegram, whether this was an absolute uh, actual offer from Germany to Mexico, or if this was staged to get America into the war. Who was our president at the time? Woodrow Wilson. We need to talk about him in more detail because there are a couple of things that he did during his administration, which set a couple of cracks through the Constitution that have become gaping holes in our time. Most notably, how the Senate works. There are a couple of key pieces in the Constitution about how the Senate was supposed to be elected, uh, senators were supposed to be elected in. Um, It was during his presidency that that got changed to a direct vote. Anyway, there's there's a lot of interesting things out there about Woodrow Wilson. He is also Um, and a lot of people don't know this when he was in college in the 1800s, he wrote a paper about how the constitution was outdated and needed to be replaced. And he was doing this in the 1880s, 90s, thereabouts. So interesting fellow, but we're, we're going to, I'm going to camp out on Woodrow Wilson at a later date because we also need to talk about the League of Nations and so on. But I mentioned those little tidbits here so that you understand why people at the time thought that the Zimmerman telegram was staged. And it was because the people at the time being aware as much as they could with newspapers and radio of what was going on in their country, there was already a question mark about that. But whether or not it was legitimate or not, it worked. Now this became sort of the straw, that and the Lusitania. What happened with the Lusitania? We talked about that before Christmas, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. Somebody remind us, Lusitania, why is that a big deal? German sunk American civilian ship. Yes. Okay, so there is an American ship on its way to Europe that had cargo uh, intended for the war on the British side. The Germans um, waited until they got into international waters and fired on the ship as, um, as an aggressor in the war because of the ammunition they were carrying. And of course, we talked about how there were a lot of American civilians aboard the ship, and the Germans actually tried to warn people before they boarded the ship. And they they were handing out flyers at the the dock saying, look, you know, this ship is carrying ammunition. You know, Germany Germany has declared that anyone tried to do blockade running, supplying guns to the enemy, that we will fire on them. If you board this ship, you're um, risking your life, you know, etc etc but of course what was the problem with them handing out all these flyers they were all in German and most of the people boarding the boat didn't speak or read German and so the boat was full the boat was fired on and so with the loss of so many American lives plus the Zimmerman telegram that was enough to tip the balance in favor of war Congress voted to go to war and so we did Now. What else, and this is going to be another uh, conversation, a different PowerPoint, but what else happened about this time of the war? Like We entered the war in 1917, and there was another big hiccup in the war that radically changed the balance of power. Remember your skit, if World War I was a bar fight, what happened? The Bolshevik Revolution. The Bolshevik Revolution. Russia has a personality change. So, um, yes. So I actually showed the recording of your skit to my elementary kiddos this morning. They got a big kick out of Russia getting knocked out and showing up with a lampshade on his head. Um, They thought that was really funny. Um, But it is during this time that Russia has its personality change. The Bolshevik Revolution happens and it changes the whole Russia dynamic in the war. And so Russia is basically devolving into chaos with its own revolution at about the time that America is jumping into the war. And unlike the rest of the people who are fighting, America is fresh and energized, we're not tired. We have the kind of strong morale that everybody else had at the beginning of the war when they were thinking of delusions of grandeur. Okay, and it becomes a game changer. Now this will be useful later, so definitely keep it in your notes section. And then if you have page protectors, you might even wanna keep this one in a page protector because uh, later when we do some of our other maps, we're gonna get this really nice contrast uh, between the outbreak of World War I, which is this, and then World War I proper, what things looked like when we were in the thick of it, And then we will look at what Europe looked like after World War I had died down and we went into this long ceasefire of the 20s and 30s, okay? Other questions about the map? Okay, here's one other thing before you put that map away. Um, Hopefully you saw it on the board. This is a vocabulary word that um, needs to be attached to this map. You can write it over that big white space of Russia or at the bottom. There's something called Balkanization and it is called this because of what happened to the Balkan nations uh, during World War I. This is the division of a place or country into several small political units often unfriendly to one another. That's about as basic as I can make that one. But we have the division of a place or country into several small political units, often unfriendly to one another. So as the Balkans fall apart, World War I happens, and then at the, the Treaty of Versailles at the end, Um, we get a lot of artificial lines being drawn on a world map. And this is where we get um, the mess. It wasn't that it just uh, began the mess in the Middle East, but where we get a lot of the complications in the Middle East. Uh, Because you had European stuffed shirts sitting in the Hall of Mirrors uh, deciding how they're going to divide up the Arabian Peninsula with no reference to how the tribes and religions of that area interacted with one another. Same thing happens in the Balkans. We get artificial countries like Czechoslavia and Yugoslavia and the Czechs and the Slavs don't like each other. They never have. They hate each other with an absolute passion. And so to lump them all together into one country and say, okay, you are all one nation now under this leader over here? Uh Uh-uh, no, no. This would be like, I don't know, what would be a good example of this, Ms. Earl? I was gonna say like Texas and Mexico. Where you would have like the, the hardcore, like. Americans, and then you would have the Mexicans and the illegal immigrants, or people who at that point would have been previously illegal immigrants, and having such radically different ideas about where the line should be drawn and who should be ruling. I was going to say, blur it together, but Texaco is actually a gas station. Um, so I was trying to take Texas or and Mexico and Michigan and the Dakotas. Oh, yeah. Okay. Very big mess. So just lumping it all together and say, okay, all of y'all just get along nice. Here's your new leader. Things would break down very quickly. That's balkanization. Um, we're, we're dividing things up without any reference to whether or not it's even a wise decision because what happens is you leave the, the human element out of it. You don't take into account culture, differences of religion, uh, differences of just prior history. I mean, if you um, took the, the French and the British and stuffed them all into one country and said that they had to get along and all obey the same leader, boy, that's like mixing oil and water. Like, they can be allies from now until forever. I mean, they were wonderful allies in the two world wars, but... The French and the English really don't see eye to eye on almost everything. I mean, they are just two totally different mindsets, two totally different peoples. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.